Hello, welcome to the episode of the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Gann. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today we have someone who is another liberty warrior, someone who's fighting for freedom each and every day and making sure that free speech is on the minds of everyone so that way we can have more of it and free markets and everything else. And it's none other than Max Golker. Max Welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Hi, Vance. Um, I just want to say you get terrific people on this show. I'm just honored to be here and uh, take the time with you. Well, Max, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program. And we've got a lot to talk about to make sure that people prosper when we're thinking about, you know, big tech and all these other things that people are talking about right now. Um, and for the audience, we're recording this on March 21st, 2023. So in case something else comes up before the time that we uh, post this online, uh, you'll know the date that we published this or that we recorded this. So let me first give the audience your background, and then we can jump right into it. So Max Golker is an economist and writer and senior policy analyst at Reason Foundation who studies how poverty and access to education can be addressed with voluntary decentralized approaches that don't interfere with free markets. He is also interested and been writing a lot about this here recently, emerging fields like blockchain and cryptocurrencies, competitive issues raised by tech giants, and the sharing economy. Golker holds a PhD in economics from Stanford University and a BA in economics from the University University of Michigan. He has spent time in the private sector consulting with large technology and financial firms on antitrust and other litigation. And he was a senior research fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research. So, Max, it's really a pleasure to have you on the Light People Prosper show. Um, you know, I, I, let's start off, though, like I do with all the, all the guests, because we got a lot to jump into today. What motivates you to do what you do each and every day? Progress. You know, it, 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 is it valuable to others? Well, they can decide, but it's certainly what engages my curiosity. Yeah. No, that's great, Max. I think that you laid that out well. And we've talked about that some on the program and on the show about you know, what's goes on in a lot of these graduate programs, uh, which ends up being a lot of a, just almost applied math. And we lose a lot of the economics and the theory and in, in many of the programs that are out there. Um, and it ends up being where you're, you, you think of the economy more as a machine because it's just a math problem that you can maximize and, you know, linear programming and things of that nature where we lose sight of, to your point, uh, that these are just humans. <laughs> this, yeah. These humans are exchanging and coming together. And, and, and um, I've, I've learned a lot from those folks that you mentioned as well, including Ben Powell, but also, you know, Thomas Sowell and Hayek um, and, um, and Kersner as well. What do you think something about like Kersner, for example, is probably someone that most people haven't heard of yet. Right. He provides so much insights in his work. What are some of the things that you would highlight from the work of and, Kersner? And, and now of more than ever, in a way, yeah. um, with the kind of technological landscape. Now, I want to be careful here with, with all of those other people you've had on your show to say, I am not an expert in um, Austrian economics and the history of Austrian thought. I am not going to give full pictures of who these people were and everything they did. I can tell you how their ideas and certain ideas and for me sure. um, and have really kind of reshuffled the deck of how I look at things a lot of the time. First of all, so Hayek kind of famously um, proposes his knowledge problem. And that, you know, starts for me to form the basis of a whole different way to look at markets and why we need markets and why they're essential. It's not the chapter one, econ 101, supply equals demand that's um, dynamic and involves real knowledge and you know, resembles something that's happening in the real world. You know, I think that Econ 101 stuff is a useful shorthand to think about how markets work if you have the foundations. It's not a particularly good justification for markets because it has a lot of 
assumptions that can be knocked down. But, you know, so Hayek sets a course with, with all of these issues about knowledge and local knowledge and lack thereof. He's relatively silent, although less so maybe in some of his later stuff on how the competitors, the firms, we would say, get that knowledge, right? And um, if I could boil down sort of one of the key ideas of Kersner into something way too simple, but that really informs, you know, the way I think especially about tech and, and these issues today, it's that the firms have to do the competing to get the knowledge, Yeah. right? That's how they, um, right, Kersner would call it entrepreneurship, although he would you know, put that on small levels and big levels, you know, finding some cost savings versus stumbling upon some complete unknown, um, you know, niche in a market or huge source of consumer demand that you've never seen before. And, you know, Cursor takes some of the logic of Hayek and some of the um, other ideas from Mises and kind of combines them and lays out this very intuitive to me framework of you know, the market is a process. We are learning throughout that process. We're learning by doing the competing by whether it's our preferences or our capabilities or sources of demand or sources of where we're valuable. There's radical uncertainty there. And we're constantly, you know, in a process of learning. And, you know, he adds entrepreneurs to that who in some ways we can say are all of us, but we can also at a higher level look at people who are learning about new potentially useful areas that that you know things can be offered in. Yeah, that's right. And and I you, you laid that out really well. And I think one of the things that I learned a lot from Kirzner and and others too, but we've really got to think about the market as a process. Too often when you get into supply and demand charts, like you mentioned a minute ago, it was that we think about there's an equilibrium and that through an equilibrium, there's this perfectly competitive marketplace. But Kersner and others have taught us is that, look, in that sort of system, there's actually not any competition. <laughs> if, you're, if you have pure competition or perfectly competitive marketplace where there's zero profit, what's the incentives, right, for there to be competition in the marketplace? And, and really, that's why it is dynamic, that you're never really at an equilibrium. You're moving to an equilibrium or you're, you have a process where people are coming together, where these prices are signaling to us whether or not we should consume or produce. But there's not like one set point that's there. Um, and that's always kind of tough to, to teach students because they see the supply and demand. They want to get to that point. But that's really just a part of the overall process, right? And um, I, I want to jump into how you think about a monopoly. That's one side of the market, the perfectly competitive or the spectrum of markets, perfectly competitive market. Um, the other side, there's a lot of talk about monopolies. And, and this gets us into our tech discussion that, I, that we wanted to have today. How do you define what a monopoly is? And are yeah. these quote unquote big tech companies, are they really a monopoly? So let me answer that question by looking particularly at some of these open and hot antitrust questions in big tech rather than just um, laying it out theoretically, which I'm never quite as good at doing. Perfect. But, um, That'll be great. You know, there was um, in the last several years, beginning, really beginning with this paper in 2017 that Lena Khan, who's now the chair of the FTC, wrote, although was a law student then. Um, the beginning of this kind of resurgence of excitement on the left in antitrust. And to capture their thinking, let me kind of tell you a little bit about 
what they think, how that's gone at the FTC a little bit, and then several of the criticisms from all around the field, including, you know, some that from my background, I can kind of synthesize different ones into. So Lena Khan writes a paper called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. And this is a takeoff of a book written in the 70s by Robert Bork called The Antitrust Paradox, which had been very influential, which had set the consumer welfare standard as the usually, by and large, kind of measuring stick to which, um, which basically says, if consumers are worse off, if price is higher or quality is lower because two firms merge and they take over too much of the market, then that's something to be reviewed. If not, um, it's not. And people can debate how perfect of a standard that is. Um, all I would say is that's a standard. It puts restraints on what kind of government can do to stop things. It forces them to really think about the mechanisms. And that in and of itself um, is, especially these days, a good thing. Um, but in Amazon's antitrust paradox, um, Lena Khan says current antitrust policy is not sufficient to sort of catch the antitrust conduct of Amazon. And why is that? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Running theme, whole bunch of reasons with these, um, uh, as, as I'll get to. Um, she says, first of all, there's network effects. And network effects make you want to get big quickly, which in a sense they do. And that that is going to lead towards um, incentives to do things like predatory pricing. And predatory pricing, you know, if you think about if I cornered the market in steel and then a new entrant came in, I could sell at a loss for a little while to outlast the new entrant that didn't have any capital or liquidity, and I'd be back and I could be a monopolist and jack up prices again. Something you, you were getting at that's worth mentioning is this movement on the left has started using monopoly simply to mean big company. Whereas monopoly, whether you're doing you know game theory or Kersner type entrepreneurship analysis has a very specific definition, just one for <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, so because yeah, everything these days, you know, because they're trying to say, well, you know, monopolies are leading to inflation. Everything else is a cause of inflation instead of, you know, government. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. Um right, monopolies are jacking up price. Yeah, that's 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 been a tough one to watch and um not not blow one's top over, but right. um so so she alleges in the paper predatory pricing conduct in ebooks and diapers. Then she moves on to sort of um, the various vertical relationships between the parts of Amazon's companies. Is we're missing anti-competitive conduct here too. Um, she talks about I, I I had to make a list because it's it um, their logistics services, their data services, their private label that competes with their Amazon Marketplace, which maybe there's an incentive maybe again as a running theme here that um they could use some of that bargaining power in and then she proposes remedies but as a whole you'll notice there's a lot of throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks she makes about six or seven different allegations in the paper and that's because this movement um, and, and is really a movement about saying the consumer welfare standard was overly restrictive to authorities in deciding who should merge and not. Before that, we operated on structure-type standards, you know, how, what was the concentration in the market. Now, they never proposed anything specific. 
But um, but so not in that paper, but later on, that this you know generates a good bit of excitement in certain circles. And for a few years, it's just kind of written about a lot in you know the circles we run in, and then the people who disagree with us. Um, and it slowly becomes known as the neo Brandeis movement. Um, a couple of criticisms about this. Let me yeah. Let me let me let me talk about a couple of criticisms, and then we can talk about how things have gone at the yeah. FTC. Um, that sounds good. You know, and, and two things I would really recommend. Um, I'll, I'll send you links to some of my stuff that's about this and, and some of the other stuff I mentioned here. So, and I'll be sure to put those in the show notes page as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, real recently, Robert Atkinson and Michael Ward wrote a terrific paper, the best one I've seen, that really took that specific antitrust paper from Khan and refuted it point by point um, in terms of, um, and this is you know fairly mainstream through the economics of two-sided markets of platform, and in saying things like sometimes you lower prices on one side to attract people on the other side. You know when 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 sides here are Amazon's buyers and sellers, they do a really good job of that. Um, David Evans and Richard Schmalensi a couple of years ago who are kind of, they weren't at Stanford, but those would have been like the professors I would have had. Um, they are these sort of game theorist, econometrician, most likely to testify if these things go to big trial um, kind of economists. And they had written something that was um, more critical in a general way of um, neo-Brandeis antitrust thinkers and their treatment of network effects in general. That Network effects don't just mean one kind, and bigger is better, and there can be heterogeneity across these. So, you know, that uh, those criticisms, I think, are really important. And those are the criticisms that, that most economists, I think, will respond to. I think another layer is added to it by um, the Kirchner-type analysis that we're talking about. And that's that, um, you know, what, what they're getting at, um, what, what Lena Khan is getting at in this paper is basically saying that network effects lead to bigness, right? And they lead to a lack of competition because then there's a high cost to enter and be as big as the other thing. Um, however, if you take the criticisms about network effects, about, you know, two-sided markets, about indirect network effects, about the fact that these are all slightly different spaces and also there's something called multi-homing. You can use multiple platforms at once. And then you look at a few other at sort of relatively novel aspects of kind of the tech world we're in now relative to what we were before. Relatively low entry costs from the beginning, a steady stream of entrepreneurs and kind of tinkerers. Um, and if you think about how all these big companies got founded and, you know, the platforms they knocked off, the people said never could get knocked off. Oftentimes, you know, it starts in somebody's garage where it starts with one idea and then it shifts to another. And in this kind of process with this constant churn, and especially because there are so many potential entrepreneurs out there in this space who are starting tinkering, you know, they can learn through that process to, um, you know, new places where there'll be consumer demand, new things that consumers want. Zoom is an extremely good example of this. In the middle of COVID, why did we not start using Google or Facebook's conferencing app, right? Why was that not insurmountable? Well, Zoom found a way to do it better. Um, who started as, you know, relatively small entrepreneurs. So 
that almost flips things on its head. And so in a way, I'm arguing that a lot of this and um, that a lot of the world we live in now is sort of Kirstner on steroids in a way, which is a funny way to look at it. But um, because of the low entry costs, because of like the entrepreneurs that almost are coming into this um, because it's their hobby or because they like to, or it's very easy to pivot from one idea to another, a lot of these network effects are actually what keep these industries com um, competitive in a way. And the, just the final little kind of corollary of that and um, is that, you know, Khan and other kind of new brand, neo Brandesian um, intellectuals will say, we need competition to discipline these firms. Well, the irony is competition made these firms, right? The, the competitive process properly defined made Amazon and made Facebook and will continue to do things that we cannot possibly predict um, as we sit here today. And messing with that seems like a bad idea. Yeah, definitely. Well laid out there, Max. And there's so many different parts to, to, to go into. But I think kind of taking a little bit of a step back with the Federal yep. Trade Commission, FTC, yep. Lena Khan, who's leading that now, the the gold standard within the antitrust um, and thinking about you know monopolies and, and breaking them down over time now has really been that consumer welfare standard, which you laid out earlier. Mm -hmm. And and other FTC commissioners have used that really as a standard. And I think right. even um, the Supreme Court has used that as well. And I don't I hope that we're not go moving away from that. But there has been a movement even from the the quote unquote right to go after some of these yeah. companies. Um, part of it may have been because of the, the removal of maybe President Trump on Twitter or on other social media, um, but there's also been pushback because of elections. And I think there's a lot that's behind that, but there has been a kind of a push to say, you know what, um, the business are the ones that are causing a lot of the problems within society. They're the ones that are bad. It's it's it, it's almost like this this NatCon uh, National Conservative sort of movement to think instead of the default being that government is the problem from a lot on the right. You know that's kind of the default that I usually have. Yeah. Um, there's this default now that well it may not just be the government. It could also be some of these businesses that are against the private markets that are against capitalism and and some I think are even agreeing. Maybe some of the Josh Hollies of the world. Senator Josh Hawley right. are, are saying, look, right. Lena Khan is, in, is heading in the right direction. Um, what are some of your thoughts of, about that? So, so let me talk a little bit about how things have gone in the first uh, year or so of Lena Khan's chairmanship of the FTC. Great. Um, and then um, I can tie that into some of a little bit of what you said about the right and, um, and some political criticisms that arise from this approach to antitrust that we're criticizing here too, in addition to the economic criticisms that we've already laid out. So, so Lena Khan becomes chair of the FTC about a year ago. Um, this is a clear signal by the Biden administration that they intend to go after big tech firms more, go um, after mergers and acquisitions more. You know, she is considered the thought leader of this uh, sort of movement. Now, early on, she makes a speech where she says, um, she says, well, I definitely don't think the FTC should have a 100% winning record in court. And if you stop and think about that, that's a sentiment that usually you, you might expect to hear from a defense attorney. Like, you know, you're kind of entitled to like all the defense that you want. 
Yeah. From a from an attorney bringing civil suits and enforcement actions against companies, um, that's saying that she wants to push the envelope. And that's a lot of what this new Brandeis movement boils down to. You know, I gave you the one example with Amazon, but this gets extended in lots of other writing. The idea is really companies shouldn't merge as much and companies shouldn't be as big. And that's not just because it's a harm to consumers. It can be a harm to labor. They can be monopsony purchasers of labor. We've seen that argued. It's, again, a laundry list. Um, the vertical um, tie-ins and um, da big data we just talked about, The um, they will say, well, you know, if this company's too big, it can influence political outcomes by its donations, probably indirections not in favor of the people who are worried about that. So, so Khan had said that, and then the FTC brought a suit trying to block a merger late this year by Meta against a virtual reality fitness or, or a per, Meta's purchase of a virtual reality fitness app called Within that was one of the first high-profile kind of rubber-meets-the-road examples of how this was going to work. And even I was surprised at how little was there when I looked at it. Basically, the allegation was. Meta, formerly Facebook, which has started exploring, you know, the nascent virtual reality market, the virtual, the hypothetical virtual reality market that doesn't really, you know, only the beginnings of exist yet. Um, they want to purchase a small entrepreneurial firm that has made a virtual reality fitness app called Within. Um, this doesn't seem unusual. This seems certainly to correspond to kind of Meta's strategic outlook. It is the kind of thing that's often considered a victory by small entrepreneurs. The FTC says, no, um, there's harm to future competition here. There's potential harm to future competition, and that's because Meta could have made um, an app in-house, too, which uh, I believe in, in, in opposing filings, the, the, the um, Meta's, Meta's legal team called that market a litigation fiction um, <laughs> as of now, and mentioned like the five or six other firms that were out there. It was very, you know, I don't even want to say it was a weak case in terms of their ability to bring a case. It was like it almost didn't matter. It was almost like bringing the case. Um, and I think, it, and and there's certainly, you know, I was sharing an article with you yesterday, I think, um, from NPR that was not necessarily casting this as a bad thing, but basically saying this is what they were doing. They want to have a chilling effect on mergers overall. If you're especially a tech company, but a big company that's thinking about buying something or moving into some space, they want you to take into account the probability they're going to take you to court and it's going to take three years and tens of millions of dollars of lawyers and people like who I used to work with to um, hash the entire thing out. And that's both was the selling point originally, but now is the problem with all of this is it's less a legal assertion and more a policy point about just pushing back against big firms. And it never really, you know, they will say certain things about different standards they would like to see change, but they never get that specific. And that's because they really want sort of discretionary power to reduce this or to keep larger firms in check who they think have a, you know, nefarious outlook. Um, you know, it, it really is a matter of um, Lena Khan and her allies saying, 
we don't want Facebook getting any bigger. Here's an example of Facebook getting bigger. Let's throw everything at it. Let's not be afraid to lose. Let's throw everything at it. We see, I said something in the first piece I wrote about this when I was just kind of flabbergasted that like bringing a lot of cases you don't think you're going to win at a big cost to taxpayers, large firms, and entrepreneurs does not seem like a good organizing principle around which anybody would, any administration would base their competition policy. That's largely been borne out so far in terms of the rubber meeting the road. You know, I, for years when I would look at this and I would think back to my time kind of working on some of these cases and consulting, I would say, don't courts like standards? <laughs> like, don't right. they like really specific? Like, where is that here? And sure enough, that 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 within case was thrown out so quickly that I think probably worked in the reverse way towards um, Khan and her team in that it wasn't a long protracted suit. Their attempt to sort of throw wrenches in it was um, didn't really amount to very much. About six weeks after the judge announced that, something even more unprecedented happened, which was the sole remaining Republican on the Federal Trade Commission which is this, you know, five people, they're appointed by presidents sitting terms. One Republican had already resigned. The second one does so, Christine Wilson, and she does so in an, a Wall Street Journal op-ed. Um, she says at the end of it, when I used to advise my clients about not polluting when they would be at trade association meetings, I would say, if people start talking about price, make a loud exit, get up, spill a drink and walk out of the room and make sure everybody sees you. And she says, consider this my loud exit. And it's not about um, the big firms are bad thing, which, you know, the FTC is supposed to have dissent. It's supposed to have people from both parties, commissioners from both parties on it. It was about the amount of power she was concentrating in the office and the amount of basically discretionary power in herself and her allies. And for time's sake, I will not get into the various allegations of that, which haven't been fully played out yet. I would say overall, that has not been a terrific first year for um, either Chairwoman Khan or for this kind of antitrust movement that um, was was just getting off the ground. In terms of the right, you know, it, it, I started just in the last day looking at the things Josh Hawley has said about the FTC. And it is, uh, I don't think he would say he agrees with Lena Khan about anything or Elizabeth Warren, who is, you know, has been one of the biggest supporters, lost one of my headphones there, of this breakup big tech movement. But he wants more power concentrated in the FTC. He wants it in a single person. These are mostly proposals from about two years ago, but still, he also has documents on his website that basically make the same antitrust allegations. I had thought before that mostly he had focused just on Section 230 and, oh, they're censoring us and they're, um, no, but it really is an anti-big tech stance. And it's just amazing because, you know, Elizabeth Warren wants big tech to do what she wants them to do. Josh Hawley wants them to do what he wants them to do. Those are very different things. But they both think that giving the FTC more power uh, more discretionary power is a good thing, as though, and this is sort of the magical thinking of it, 50% of elections don't go to the party they don't like, right? Right, like, right. As though that's going to... Uh, as though that's going to stop it. And so it really is. Um, we've seen a lot of opposition to big tech on both the left and the right that amount to 
whether it's competition, whether it's censoring or not censoring, whether it's algorithms, it all boils down to we want them to do what we would like them to do, which then gets defined as democracy, um, whatever side it was. And just to circle back around to um, to Kurtzner on steroids and whatnot, um, this is a world of radical uncertainty, right? We're we're going through this innovative process to learn how to use these very fundamental technological advancements that probably, my guess, looking back, are going to be seen as very fundamental. And so getting that wrong and not sort of understanding the dynamics and the learning behind that um, is a recipe for disaster, no matter who is misunderstanding it, really. Yeah, well said, Max. I think that you really laid that out well and so many different areas. It 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 also is kind of um, troubling to me that people would want bureaucrats to be more a part of this process. Whenever bureaucrats, regulation, red tape, that stifle the innovation, the new technologies, the churn that you talked about, mergers and acquisition that happen in the marketplace that allows us yeah. to come up with new things. It's one of the reasons why you know tech, the tech space. Um, and new technologies have helped to bring down prices. When you look mm -hmm. at Mark Perry's chart of the century, the things that have went down over time have usually been those that have had the most churn, that have had the most yeah. technology innovations that can take place. And we're really stifling a, lo a lot of that. And I think from whether it be the left from the, or from the right, ends up being more about politics and not really understanding the consumer welfare standard, not really understanding the that innovation is where this stuff takes place and how bureaucrats are going to end up leading a lot of the way, like at the FTC, instead of allowing the marketplace and the entrepreneurs, you know, talk about Kersner and everything else, where that really should be where the innovation takes place. It's going to set us for the path for the future and thinking about the future, kind of the last couple of minutes we have here, Max, and this has been such good information. So thank you. What do you, what do you think that about the future that could provide the most opportunity to let people prosper kind of in this space or so maybe something else that you're working on? So let me try to link a couple of things um, to do that. Um, I do think the, that we're in the middle of a technological revolution right now. I think the, the probably looking back and, and you know predicting what the heck history is going to say is I'm I'm having fun here. I'm speculating, but you know this is probably going to be seen on par with the industrial revolution. I think the information revolution or whatever. And when you see the decentralizing impact that that has, um, just the fact that we're sitting here talking today, just the fact that um, of how easy it is to start a very small business where you're selling things if there's not you know regulation online, um, just all of the bottom-up capability there. I think that this, in many ways, is the ticket out of big top-down government government that still allows for a society that maybe does some of the things that the better intention top-down folks wanted to do, you know, whether it's policy, whether it's institutions, you know, I think another, you know, we, we worry about what social media doing to the world and what, so, and I always think about Hayek with social media. And I think if he could see this, if I could go grab him in a Bill and Ted time machine um, and put him down in front of this for a week, again, you've talked to people who would know better than me, but it seems to me like all of these little battles we're having are exchanges of information and that ultimately maybe it's really long term 
you know, our knowledge and our understanding of how to organize ourselves is going to turn out so much better for that. Um, so that's a big part of why I'm interested in technology and um, kind of how it relates to all this. Yeah, that's great, Max. And I think uh, I, I agree with you. I think that there's a lot that we're learning and learning is knowledge and, le- and, and more knowledge is going to help us to for the future, um, for more prosperity, for more overcoming obstacles and hopefully more freedom and liberty, right? The things that we like and we understand um, support so much of the growth and prosperity across not only here in the U.S., but across the world. So um, I just want to say thank you, Max, for all the work that you do. Um, God bless you and, and your family and continue to do great things. Um, in, in your future. Too. You yeah, too, thank, Vance. Thank you. Th- thanks so much. And um, for the audience, thank you all for listening. Now, it's been a little bit longer um, discussion here today, but it's one that's really needed and one that I think we need to have more discussions. I may have Max back on, um, but if you would, please give us a five-star rating. And until next time, let people prosper. <laughs>